Please. Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinSlift.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon to pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at FunkinStuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify, as always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get, uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend, tell family. Also get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here, Truth and Rhythm shirts, Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, one of funk and R&B music's most accomplished guitarists, Marlon McLean. Also a prominent composer, producer, and arranger, his nearly 50-year career has been distinguished by being a founding member of the great progressive 1970s band Pleasure, playing a central role in the early 1980s synth funk group Shock, and then he spent many years with the popular funk R&B act, The Daz Band. As if that were not enough, he has also worked with a plethora of famous and beloved artists, such as Jeff Lorber and In Vogue, and has even found time for solo projects. His latest in that regard, Funky Fridays Volume 1, is a fun and energetic EP just released, and I love it. Marlon, how are you? I'm great. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me on your show. Great to have you, and uh, hope that you're doing okay, considering all the craziness of recent weeks. Yes, you know, we're out here in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, we've been basically hunkered down in our house, you know, for the past, really, three weeks, uh, just really just staying inside and not going out that much. I, I go out every now and then to ride my bike, but basically just staying in the house and trying to trying to uh, listen to what the experts are saying and just follow, follow suit. So, yeah, we're, we're doing fine. Great. Glad to hear that. And you're doing what everybody should be doing, and... It'll be a few weeks before this uh, post. So hopefully by then we'll have turned a corner. So we pray for that. Yeah, I totally agree. Like I said, I think the, that the more people really listen to what, you know, the officials and the experts are saying, the, the sooner we'll get past all this. Because the whole concept of flattening the curve is really real. 
you know, you know, we we see examples. I know in, in on my side, I've I've I know at least five people that have been affected, you know, close with a family member or somebody that they knew that unfortunately got the virus and and died. So, you know, you just know that it really is really real and you have to really listen to what these people are telling you. Yeah, well, sorry to hear about that, but um, hopefully, like I said, we're starting to move the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, music helps us get it, get through it all, right? For, for sure, you know, to me, the one thing about music that's never changed, no matter what period you're talking about, is that it's... Um, it always gives people comfort, right? And no matter what style, you know, that's the one thing I love about music is you have so many different styles of it out here, and as long as you appreciate it, it it, it, it connects you in a certain type of way. And so to me, music right now, as well as any type of entertainment that's going to soothe people, is, is good. Yeah, thank God for it. I mean, <laughs> and uh, thank you for bringing it to us, Marlon. Um, so, prolific guitar player, uh, how did you get started on the guitar and how did you develop those other, you know, skills you have like composing and producing and all that? Uh, well, you know, basically I'm a, I'm a self-taught musician. Um, similar to some of the other guys uh, that were in Pleasure, like, you know, the, the Daniel Phillips and well, Douglas Lewis too. You know, we grew up in the same neighborhood. And so we all kind of got guitars uh, around the same time, and we basically would uh, go back and forth to each other's house and listen to records. And from learning records, that's how we got good. You know, just by I, I tell everybody that to me the the way of being good on an instrument is just practicing. So I practice a lot, even now I still practice. Yeah, except well, a lot of the practice actually is on camera now, so everyone can enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, started, you know, from like around the sixth, seventh grade. I got a guitar, asked my mom to give me a guitar for Christmas and got it. And then, you know, I just a lot of times I stayed in my room. I was just in, in my room listening to James Brown and Jimi Hendrix records. Yeah, so, and I had uh, uh, Nate and Michael Hepburn were on the show a while back. It was, they were a lot of fun. So we talked, you know, deep in a pleasure. So uh, I won't... Uh, you know, ask you for all those details. They covered a lot of that ground, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but what a, what a great band. And, you know, I think, um, you know, in a lot of ways underrated and maybe didn't, you know, get quite as much acclaim as they should have. You know, the great thing, once again, when you just about music, what's cool about it is that, um, when you do something, it, it lasts. So, you know, the thing about pleasure, which, which I love seeing is that, you know, even though, you know, we put out records in the 70s, even now you'll see people who have either been a fan of the group from back then or just now discovering the group, and the comments are still the same. You know, so you know that, you know, as a, as a band and as a musician, you put your heart and soul into something and people just really appreciate it. Oh, so absolutely. that's what I like about Pleasure's music. Oh, it's, it's, stand, it's it has stood the test of time so well. And, you know, it's like going back for a little treasure trove on some of those records and like, oh, yeah, or I didn't remember that one. But, you know, it's it's just great funk, jazz, R&B. It's and, and the the players were so great in that band. Right. Well, for sure. And, and like I said, the, the great thing about Pleasure was it's all community based. It all came from the Albina community. 
uh, and the group just came up together and you know made a bunch of great records and we, we always have that to, to to go back to yeah so uh, what was uh, do you remember when you first went out to, to play professionally and 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 what was that like and um, did you feel comfortable on stage <laughs> well I don't think um, I ever really feel comfortable even now because you always have that part of the anticipation if you know what I mean like you know in other words you 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 practice and you work on your stuff you work on your 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 playing but to me every gig you play is all different and it's all happening in that time and space so I've always had that feel like wow it's, it's happening kind of thing and I'm not scared scared but I'm never really super super comfortable hmm. right uh, and so for us so for me coming up you know you know some of our first gigs were playing at this place called uh, the downstairs lounge which was in the community of, of Portland and it was kind of like the place that I mean almost all the the black entertainers played before they got big enough to play at the Paramount Theater downtown. So Pleasure at the time we were called the Soul Masters. That was really like our regular place. We were kind of like the house band. And that's really where I learned the most of, you know, I would say me personally learned the most of my chops. Because, you know, as a band, not only did we play our original music, but we played, you know, whether it was Grover Washington or the Ohio Players, Miles Davis, Weather Report, all, all, all that kind of stuff that we love, we played it in the clubs. Mm -hmm. So that's really where you, you know, got your chops. At, at what at what point did you say, hey, you know what? I think I can make this as my livelihood. Uh, well, my my story really was. Um, my my mom had said, well, you got to show me that you can make money at this. So I knew that I could make money at it was when we got our first record deal with Fantasy Records. And I was able to show her, you know, our recording contract that we got with Wayne Henderson producing us. And we signed with Wayne, then Wayne signed us to Fantasy. And so that was like the point of me saying to myself, okay, you know what? I think that I can, if I really focus on it, I can be in the music business for a long time. What do you think you might have been if you didn't take a music path? Um... I think I might have, you know, got into something business-wise, maybe went to college and, you know, got a business degree. Because I, I like doing stuff behind the scenes. So I think I would have probably focused on something like that. Yeah. Well, it's important to have that acumen in this business, you know. So that's definitely a feather in your cap if you, you know, pay attention to those details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always liked uh, trying to figure out how things work behind the scenes. And so... Uh, even with doing music, I've always had the interest of being around, you know, whether it's managers or agents or just people that are doing stuff behind the scenes to try to figure out how all that stuff really works. Mm -hmm. Would you say that uh, Future Now was really, you, you know, your, your best guitar showcase in the Pleasure catalog? As far as guitar? Yeah. Um. You know what? I think that um, they're probably well, maybe. I'm not really sure if I would say that only because you know, all the pleasure records to me 
has a have a lot of great whether you know guitar keyboards horns it was just such a mixture of all of it um, I would say that future now was probably the one that, that the guitars were maybe show, showcased the most mm-hmm. as far as in the mix of it yeah right right it's re- really prominent yeah. um, but I wouldn't necessarily say that that, that was like the you know the the best showcase of playing guitar, if you know what I mean. Only because I think all the records, Hawkins said, to me, all the records that Pleasure made are all kind of like a combination that gets to Future Now. Right? Progression. And that's yeah. part of just how the, the, the band evolved. And once we got to that level, once we got to that point, that was kind of what was on, that's kind of just kind of what came out. And so, um, I just look at it as a, as a natural progression. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you enjoy playing lead as much as that rhythm, or? Uh, I would say that I I love playing rhythm more so than lead. I I love rhythm guitar. I, I love locking with people, right? And that's the, that's the nature of rhythm is being able to lock with the section. Yeah. So I love that. That brings me so much joy. <laughs> Who were, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, were there a couple of other players? Uh, you mentioned, you know, some bands like James Brown, but who were a few of the players that you just really looked up to or influenced you? Well, obviously all the guitar players in James Brown's uh, group were, were I was fans of, and fans of, you know, obviously people like Al McKay. I'm a huge fan of Al McKay. Uh, and it was just like today I, I sent a birthday message to uh Steve Shockley of Lakeside. He was another guy we met really, really early in our careers. I mean, before we both had record deals. And he's always been an awesome guitar player. Golly. You listen to his records, you know, whether he's playing on Lakeside records or playing on other people's records, like the Whispers and stuff like that, you hear his parts and it's phenomenal. So I've always been a big fan of his too. And obviously, you know, uh, before we got to meet him, you know, Sugarfoot from How Power Players, another great guitar player, golly. Mm-hmm. You just hear the parts and just hear how they all fit together. You just can't help but to be a, you know, a big fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's one of my favorites by far. <clears throat> but he could do it all, too, with the singing yes, and yes, everything. Yes, he sure could. <clears throat> nice guy, too. Yeah, I only met him backstage once. Um, didn't get to talk to him a whole lot, but that's what I've heard. Yeah, regret, you know, of course, him passing, and I uh, wish I could have gotten him on this show, but uh, we still pay tribute to him, and I did have Diamond on, so. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, what a legacy. Um, so, how, how did Pleasure come to a conclusion for you, and how did you transition? Around the same time, you, you got the shock thing going, and you also put out a solo record. Yeah, I would say kind of with um, with working with Wayne Henderson. Wayne Henderson was a great mentor. God, I can't say enough great things about that guy. You know, not only with dealing with pleasure because he was he was a person that brought us into the business, but he was all also kind of like a person that you could really talk to about stuff. And so early on, I kind of wanted to to become a music producer, and I would talk to Wayne about it. And so Wayne, early on, kind of took me under his wing and, you know, showed me things about how to do it. And um, For a while, I was signed to his company as a producer, and he would 
give me stuff to do. And so from there, I just really just got the bug of wanting to be a producer. And so it was kind of like a natural thing with pleasure. Uh, at the time, I was working with Shock, and I was also getting ready to work with Jeff Lorber. And so there just came a time where I kind of wanted to start doing more of that kind of stuff opposed to being in the band. And so that happened like right after, uh, not too long after we did the Future Now record. And what, what were some of the skills that Wayne was able to impart on you? Uh, I would say just really the part about what Wayne was great about was getting you to really listen to a song and listen to what the elements were in the song that made it all come together, right? And even though he was, uh, you know, an awesome jazz musician, he was really super progressive in regards to saying, let's try to pull all these elements together to make music. It doesn't have to be jazz. It just has to be good, right? And so, you know, that's why he was able to have, to me, success with people like Ronnie Laws, with uh, uh, all the stuff that he was going doing, Gabor Zabo. We got to work with him on a lot of stuff. Uh, and he was just really good with, how can I say, just really being open about how to make records. Mm-hmm. I, I noticed you worked uh, also with Side Effect, right? Yes, we sure did. Yeah, that's another sort of... Uh, group that you know was great that i love but didn't get over quite that big um but that must have been fun too that was sure fun obviously we did uh you know i think we did like two or three of their records and obviously the you know did one of their biggest songs always there which was you know the, the ronnie laws hit uh we, we had a lot of fun you know wayne just had a way of, of really getting people to come together and relax and have fun in the studio so it was always great working with them it had quite a fantasy family going there at that time. Yes, it sure did. Yeah, at, at Home Productions, I mean, it was all, like I said, it all came from from Wayne. What you know, his his vision and his way of uh, putting stuff together. So, how did you connect with the Shock guys? Uh, I connected from with Shock. Um, you know, obviously from being being in Portland, you know, and knowing other groups that are going around and stuff like that. I, Roger Sauce and I became friends, and Roger was the leader of Shock. And, um, you know, he had asked me to work with them on producing some music, and we just went into the studio and started doing it. Roger's a very, very super talented uh, musician. Yeah. I've not met him. I hope to. And his brother, too, right? Yes, yes. But I would really say it was really Roger, and I'm not taking anybody else away from the group because all the guys were talented, but Roger really was kind of like, kind of like this this spearhead of how that group really came together because he had this way of, of, of making funk music, right, that really came from him and everybody else kind of fed off his energy. I don't, know, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but that's kind of yeah. how I looked at it, yeah. right? Sure. You know, you see that from different different guys. In other words, Bootsy has a certain kind of energy, mm-hmm. right? So no matter who he gets around, it's, it's going to be that Bootsy energy. You know what I mean? Definitely. So you can have different players in his group, but he radiates that so much that that's what it's going to be, right? And that's kind of mm-hmm. how Roger was. He just has this kind of energy about himself. And when, when he got on playing the, the keyboard bass, it was just always so 
so funky. Just you know, he just it just came out of him naturally like that. And he just had all these ideas about you know making music that was just that became the the shock sound. Mm-hmm. And so all I, all I really did as a producer was try to help him harness that with his band, and you know we made, made records. It sounds like there was that's like a, a second funky Roger that came on the scene right about that same time with Roger Troutman. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. that's so true. So they ended up putting out two or three albums in the early eighties, right? Yeah, yeah, and obviously, you know, their their biggest record was was Let's Get Cracking, which is, mm-hmm. you know, s- still funky today. Yeah. Uh, and then the same thing. We went on from you know doing the shock stuff, you know, as songwriters. We work with Kenny G, and we have a song together called uh, G Force, which was written by me, Roger, and and uh, the bass player Joe Plass and and Kenny. Um, and so you know, they, they just kind of just after the group kind of. Like I said, did not have a, a, a huge success. Roger and Joe just kept doing other stuff. So I know that they tried, I think they tried to come back in the uh, end of the decade, right? Um, why, why did things sort of fizzle in the early 80s with it, do you think? Well, you know, I kind of think it's, it's natural. How can I say it? music has a natural progression? to it that's what if you look if you follow the careers of, of most artists you see that happening naturally and that is you know a, an artist or a group will come up with a certain type of sound that becomes popular uh, and they might get to a certain level and if you don't um, figure out how to go to another level with whatever whatever you're doing then you basically kind of stay at that level and eventually you kind of fall off Right, because it's the natural part of how, um, how I say you, it's natural part of not growing your fan base. Right, and so with shock, that's what happened with shock, and that's what, and you see that, I mean, similar what happened to pleasure. You, you see that with a lot of groups. You know, if you take groups like Con, Confunction or the Barcade, I'm, I'm friends with all of them. Um, you had that part of seeing their careers where they, man, when we, when we first met the Barcade, they were. Huge. They were like one of the biggest groups in the South. They're almost like a rock group when we went down to play with them. They were like selling out stadiums, right? They were that that big. So sell out the Coliseums. I mean, straight selling them out. But then they went to a period where you know, for whatever reason, their music, even though it was still the same band, the the fan base just dwindled. Right. It's kind of like, like I said, it's natural progression. Now, now you see now. The bands from that era actually are coming back in regards to fans wanting to see them live, not necessarily by the their new music, but really relive those memories of those classic records that they made. Well, also, I mean, no one plays like I mean, hardly anyone plays like that now that comes up. So, you know, it's very, very special those sounds and and the yeah, talent you know, awesome. from that era. But, but, so. but I believe there's a natural. I don't want to say it's a I don't necessarily know how to put it, but I think it's a natural progression that happens. Yeah. Right. And when you see artists that are able to transcend where they were at a certain time that they were making music and go to another level with their music, then you see that part of 
them continually to get bigger and bigger. You know, the best example I can give of that is a guy like Charlie Wilson. Mm-hmm. Charlie Wilson has had an awesome, incredible career as the Gap Band, you know, the lead singer of the Gap Band. But then when he decided to become Charlie Wilson, he really figured out how to reinvent himself in a way that made his songs, people want to buy those new songs. And his new songs have become just as big as his classic hits with the Gap Band. Yeah. So he's figured that part out. You see what I mean? There's, yeah, it's like a, a he has like a renaissance. To, yeah. Yeah. There's a part where you have to transition because you can't put out the same type of stuff that you did in the '80s, in the 1990s or 2000s because the taste has changed a little bit. And so you have to figure that part out. And you've worked on Charlie's records too, right? Um. I've I've played on a few Charlie Wilson records, and I I work with Charlie's manager. His name is Michael Perrin, who's an awesome manager. Uh, so I've got to see that whole part of Charlie starting off transitioning from, you know, being the Gap Band lead vocalist to Charlie Wilson, and he's he's done an awesome job, man. I'm so proud of him. Yeah, yeah. He might even be selling more records now. I mean, he he came back so big, you know. So. Much credit to him, um, for sure. Um, but with the shock thing, did, did you feel like the a label, uh, you know, did all they could for the group at that time, or was that? Yeah, oh yeah, Fantasy Records is an awesome record record label. Golly, you know, uh, the president of the company, Ralph Caffel, awesome kind of guy. You can go right down to his office and talk with him about stuff, and he would, you know, always tell you what's going on. They always had a great uh, publicity department. The great thing about Fantasy was that it was all one shop together. So you go down to the offices, then go right through a few doors and go to the studio. Hmm. So, you you know, you were there with the people all the time. Hmm. And so it was really just a huge, big family operation, which was awesome. That is cool. Yeah, you get the... Continuity well, that we way. We were recording in a, I call it the studios, you know, that Creedence Clearwater built because hmm. that was an act that, that, that really put fantasy on the map. And they had sold a lot of records, right? And so we, we were lit, literally, you know, I don't want to say living off them, but that's kind of what it was, you know, the part of you had this group that was, you know, that was became a major pop act that was generating revenue that really supported all the other stuff that fantasy wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of like a byproduct of that. And they were such great people. Golly. Your record, Marlon, uh, came in 81 changes. And, um, you know, how'd you feel about how that turned out and how'd you feel about the reception and the whole process? And Same thing. Like I said, I, I look at making records, even like the one I have out right now, it's just kind of like, um, it's a part of who you are at that time. So Changes was a record that I made after I had left Pleasure. And um, I got to make it with a lot of people that I wanted to go in the studio with. And we had a great time. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to work with, with my buddy Jeff Lofer some and uh, some of the other guys from Portland. And so, you know, it's just a reflection of, of how I felt at the time. Mm-hmm. Why do you think you click so well with certain guys like a Jeff Lorber, you know? I think because, um, first of all, I'm a, 
I'm a musician, but I'm really a fan. I'm a fan of music. So even though I know how to play guitar and I know how to, you know, go on and produce, I'm really a fan of people. So, you know, I'm a, and from being a fan, I think I'm able to say certain things to the artist that they might may not think about. And from doing that, it's, it's able to uh, open up a few things that helps to make the records better. But I always say it's all the artists. Isn't, to me, the producers are really only, how can I say, one other tool that the artist gets to use to make their music better. So to me, it's never the producers. It's, it's always the artists. Mm-hmm. So I always say that we're, we're just trying to get the best out of what that artist is trying to say and trying to get it. Back then, it was the tape, you know, getting it to the tape machine. Now it's it's digital. But I would always say we're just trying to put those feelings onto the tape. So the more we can do that, right, the more the the listener is going to relate to it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So... You know, you mentioned about, um, uh, I think you mentioned you mentioned a lot of the artists like Barquets and all those guys uh, can function. Aside from maybe like a Parliament Funkadelic, who were a couple of the most impressive acts that you shared a stage with when you were doing the touring thing back then? Well, obviously, there was always a lot of great acts. Um, one of the acts, obviously, was Frankie Beverly and Mays. Pleasure got to open up for those guys, you know, early on in our careers. Um, and I would say when we were coming up, uh, Cameo was another funk band that was crazy. Mm-hmm. When we first was working with them, golly, they were just so uh, innovative, right? And you would, you know, they hit the stage and you'd say, oh, man, we can't follow those guys because <laughs> they were just so tight and so funky. Yeah, it was good. It was a good, good. To me, that was a really, really good era for music for sure, because you had yeah. so many, so many bands and so many, how can I say, types of music, right? So in other words, you could see the funk of a cameo, but then you would go, you know, see a group like the Average White Band, and even though it was different, it would be just as funky mm-hmm. and great, right? And then you might go see, like I said, you go see a, a weather report. That was different, but was just as crazy. Just, you know, it was just such a good era for music. Oh, yeah. In my opinion. <laughs> I'm totally with you on that. Um, I like to hear new music always, but, you know, that period, man, if, you know, for funk and fusion, incredible. Right. <laughs> um, for, for sure. Yeah. So uh, in the mid '80s, you hooked up with the Daz Band, and you know when we talk about a group that's, you know, with longevity, um, there's one right there. So, how did you connect with them, and what has that ride been like? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's been pretty cool. How I connected with the Daz Band was that uh, I had moved down to L.A. Um, in the early '80s, and I moved down because Maurice White had told me. If I came down to L.A., uh, he'd have me play on his solo record. So I'd been friends with, we have been friends with Urban Fire from the early days. And so I always kept in contact with Maurice. So I moved down to um, L.A. like in 84 
And uh, I got down here and I called up Reggie Andrews, who was a good friend. And Reggie Andrews was producing the dance band. And I called Reggie to see what was going on, try to get some session work. So he said, well, Marlon, he said, you're not going to believe this, but the guitar player in the dance band just left the band. And Bobby Harris needs a guitar player. I want you to give him a call. You know, he may want you to join the band. So I literally call up Bobby Harris on the phone. And Bobby goes, look, Marlon, I know who you are. I saw you with Jeff Lorber when you came to Cleveland to play. Uh, do you want to be in the dance band? I said, yeah. So I moved to L.A., and it was no more than, I would say, maybe a week after that, I'm taking a flight to Cleveland to join the dance band. <laughs> and I've been playing with them ever since. It's crazy. Wow. So obviously that clicked real well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it, was, it was a great time. You know, got obviously same thing, great, great band, super talent in the band. Uh, we have, have a lot of fun. And obviously, similar to uh, Pleasure, you know, they were a band that was a community-based band from Cleveland that came up that was incorporating both, you know, R&B and jazz and stuff together. You know, I had horns, had keyboards, had all that stuff. So very similar to Pleasure. But the only difference is I would say that they focused more on their vocals than Pleasure did. They weren't as uh, much instrumentalists as, as Pleasure was, but same type of concept and so it was really easy for me to fit in with the band great guys we had a great great time on the road awesome yeah so and it still afforded you enough you know flexibility to do other projects that you wanted to do right? yeah, yeah oh yeah for sure you know the thing about those guys um and especially about bobby harris is the leader of the group and he comes from that space of of uh being around guys like Reggie Andrews and all those, you know, all those guys are more guys that work on a lot of projects and write songs and stuff like that. And so it, it was never really an issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, what what was, what can you say about Maurice White? Um, literally one of the, how can I say it? One of the most patient guys I've ever met. And what I mean by that is his whole concept of making music is that he would say, okay, we're, we're going to work on this until we find that perfect pocket. And so one, one time he had me play his guitar line. It was just like, you know, I thought I was playing it great. It was like he would come out into the studio and say, well, Marlon, you know, you're – it's almost there, almost there, but let's keep working on it until we get it. And he's just so patient with the part of how he, he felt the music. And once you had it, he would say, okay, that's it right there. We got it. So let's, let's, let's lay that down, right? Uh, and obviously, you know, you look at guys like that, you know, Maurice White, Quincy Jones, they have so much music in their heads that they're able to let it out. Right. And it, and when it comes out, you know, based on how they put it together with the people they work with, it's just always so amazing. So that's the part that I looked at Maurice Scott is just such a, a amazing person that was able to channel music. 
on such a high level, right? And you just listen to, you know, what he put out. And you, just, you just say, wow, it's just incredible. Yeah. And like I said, he was just such a, a sweetheart of a guy to work with. Just so, so patient. Well, all I hear is great stuff about Maurice White. And, um, you know, of course, we know what he did musically, but just also as a person, um, you know, I hear only good things. So, Oh, yeah, yeah, really, really sweet Harvard guy. There was one time when I asked him to come. This is when we were working on the jazz and record. I asked him to come if he'd come in and play uh, timbales. And I, I, didn't, I, I thought he was going to say no. But he did. He came in and just played his heart out and it was just freaking incredible you know so he's just a very sweetheart of a person oh that's great yeah. to hear when you get to that level and you're still that way that's great to hear exactly because you know you always hear the uh, you know those other kind of stories right yeah that when a person becomes you know really super successful and you know everything is going for them and all of a sudden that person that you used to thought you knew now doesn't really recognize you. You know, they won't pick up your phone calls or if you see them at a hotel or something, you know, you know, they bypass you or the, you know, the bodyguards won't let you get to them. But Maurice was never like that. I remember once uh, I could always, you know, call him or send him a message and he would always, you know, get, get back and, and connect. Yeah, that's beautiful. Either Either the ego or substances get to too many, you know. Yeah, that's true. Um, you were also involved with uh, New Shoes, and they had that unexpected smash hit, I think in 86, called I Can't Wait. Um, I'm sure awesome listeners record. and viewers remember that. Um, what, yeah. what was that story? Well, the, the story to that is that, uh, you know, John, Val and John, who, who, who I'm still friends with right now, awesome people, you know. Awesome people. Uh, they're obviously from Portland, and that was a song that, that John had had that, that they've been playing around for a while in the in the clubs. Um, and we had a mutual friend who was a promotion guy at the time for Warner Brothers. His name was Greg Lee, and Greg Lee had connected with the group and had um, through New Shoes and their manager had convinced Warner Brothers to do a demo uh, for New Shoes, and they asked me to produce the demo. And I Can't Wait was one of the songs, as well as a few other songs. Um, and pretty much kind of like what you hear is what it was as far as the actual dem demo of it, except for the remix, the guy did do some additional stuff to it, which became the hit. But the story was, was we, had, we had made the demo, and uh, Atlantic Records didn't like what we had done. So they said, hey, we're not going to you know, sign the group kind of thing, whatever. Um, and the manager of, of New Shoes, Rick Wards, had connected with a DJ remixer over in the Netherlands, sent them uh, what we had originally done. He did that remix. The remix went out to the clubs, and all of a sudden things started going crazy, and it got picked up by Atlantic, and, man, it just went phenomenal. It was nuts, right? became a big, huge hit, and then we went in and, uh, did the the poolside album after the I can't wait was you know such a big record and it just launched their careers. It was yeah. awesome. I was a a club disc jockey throughout the eighties and I mean that record 
People loved it. Great, great song. You know, and like I said, uh, and John and Val just, you know, they're just beautiful people. So you, you just like seeing good things happen to people like that. <laughs> yeah. Were you were you stunned that it got over like it did? Uh, well, I mean, like I said, we thought we, we thought we had made a, a great demo, right? But obviously at the time, Warner Brothers didn't like it. But I was really glad to see the record came back. Right. That's what made it so, how can I say it, so cool was that they got turned down by Warner Brothers, but then the record started making noise on the street, got picked up by Atlantic, and they had this huge hit. Yeah. That's kind of the story of a lot of records, you know, where, you know, you might put something out and somebody might not necessarily like it at the time, but then somebody else hears it or does something to it and then it circles back, you know, it connects to the people. And that's, to, to me, the people are always the last words. So that's, that's so awesome with that if, record if you can get to enough of their ears yeah timing yeah. timing and some luck and all these things you know have to happen to hit at that level yeah, yeah. oh yeah for sure yeah. like i said obviously it was meant to happen that's, yeah. that's, to me that's the only way you can look at it right mm -hmm. so that record was really really meant to happen and it did and in, in, in a major way yeah. <laughs>